Hello and welcome to Founder and Chief, Azus podcast. I'm Paul McGlone, Head of Business Development. Azus is an independent financial services group working across public and private capital markets in the UK. We work alongside many of the most exciting businesses in the UK and we are passionate about supporting our clients. This podcast is about the people behind these businesses. In this episode, I'm talking to Morton Toft Beck, founder of The Meatless Farm. Morton, welcome to the Zeus Founder and Chief podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. You are an investor, entrepreneur, and the founder of Meatless Farm, the UK's fastest growing plant-based meat alternative company. You describe your mission as simple, to reduce the environmental impact of the food we eat by developing tasty, succulent alternatives to meat. Since founding the company in 2016, you've raised over £35 million from investors and your products are sold in Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, as well as on the menu at Itsu, TGI Fridays, Leon and Pret. Your ambassadors include a personal favourite of mine, professional cyclist Mark Cavendish, master chef Daryl Schuler, and Real Madrid. Some journey for you, Morton. Congratulations. I'm sure this will be a fascinating listen to anybody, whether that be those interested in the lifestyle changes in terms of their meat consumption, to learning about your fundraising rounds. Before we get into that, though, I always start the podcast asking our guests to describe where we are today and where we are recording this podcast. Yeah, so we are in uh, Mallorca in Spain, in the Balearic Islands, and uh, we are recording this in my house. So Paul kindly came to see me, and, uh, and that's where we're sitting today. Awesome. Blue skies outside. Blue skies outside, beautiful lunch prepared by your wonderful wife. It's been a pleasure so far, Morton. Thank you very much for your hospitality. Oh, my pleasure. Plant-based, by the way. Very, yes, everything was very honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why did you start Meatless Farm and talk to me around the inspiration? Yeah, so I was uh, living with uh, three small kids at that point in time in, in Ibiza. And my wife is a long-time vegetarian. And uh, I've, I've done other businesses, so this is not my first sort of entrepreneurial activity. And I was at a point in my life, I think, where... I, with small kids, you think more about the future and what's ahead of us, what are the structural changes that need to happen. And, and, you know, since someone was already building rockets to go to Mars and so forth, I thought we should do something that could directly impact our lives while we're still alive. And, and I looked at the uh, environmental impact of the food supply chain and essentially how we wrap everything in plastic, how we eat too much meat, that all the protein, essentially, when you walk into a supermarket, it's not a a protein aisle, it's, it's a meat aisle. And I, there was something that sort of triggered my interest into, into food, even though I never worked in food before. And, uh, and then discussing it one night in, in, in the kitchen in our house, uh, we were living in a finca in the countryside. So, so it was very much growing our own vegetables and that sort of thing. And Ingrid said, oh, it's really hard work to, Ingrid is my wife, and uh, it's really hard to uh, cook something where you're thinking not only about like, not eating meat, but you're also thinking about the nutritional part of what you're giving to your kids, for example. How do they get uh, iron? How do they get the protein? How do they get uh, enough uh, omega-3s or 6s and so forth? And she said, I, there ought to be a product like that was easy to cook every day with that would just fulfill all these, uh, these, these uh, tick all the boxes, essentially. And I thought, right, there might be something there. So I went to the UK where we lived for many years and... Uh, and, uh, and went to a, a, a food research lab and, and discussed it with them, the possibility of building some sort of minced meat because you just look at the family favorites and you see which type of 
products are most families using most frequent in most houses, and that is often a minced meat of so the first product. Then that was our first product. Yeah. So we launched that. It took about eighteen months to develop. So it was it was a lot harder to develop. Our first mince was was uh, was developed together with this uh, RSSL they're called, which is in uh, in, in Reading uh, University campus. Uh, it's a sort of owned by Cadbury actually, but it's a it's a research lab that's uh, that's very pronounced. And and it turned out that the lady that was running the the lab was actually a vegan herself. So she found it really interesting to try to make something that. She was passionate about it. She was passionate, and, but she kept questioning, why do you want it to look like minced meat? And at that point in time, you know, and this was, this was actually before this whole sort of plant-based uh, movement started. And, and it wasn't obvious because there was a lot of plant-based patties and things around, but they were all vacuum-packed and, 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 and very vegan sort of focused. And, and I always thought that was a barrier of entry for a lot of, say, normal consumers that eat meat. So I wanted it to look like meat because and fry like meat so you don't have to change the way that you cook but okay. then you just basically go into the supermarket you could pick a, a, a pack of 400 grams of, of normal mints or 400 grams of our mints they look the same they fry the same and they taste the same because i thought if we can get to that point then you are getting into the space of mass conversion and by mass conversion meaning mass consumers mass supermarkets and so forth and then actually the volumes are going to change the, I mean, if you're a niche product, that's that's great and everything, but it's not going to make an environmental impact. You need to get the masses to eat less uh, beef, animal protein, and more into plants. So how do we do that? And that, that was sort of the mission. And and from from that point on, yeah, then it's just been um, I, I funded that that part of of the business uh, with very little money and uh, and and just sort of. Look, is the product good enough? Yes, okay. And we were very lucky early on to get Sainsbury's as our first supermarket, uh, probably because there was nobody else in the space. So, so you know, but also because I think the product was was right. The brand Meatless Farm was sort of slowly starting to be created. And, um, and so at that time, if I was to go into the supermarket Sainsbury's, for example, what would have been on the shelf for me to choose from from a plant based perspective, or if it, if, if it was only vegan, the only vegan products? Yeah, I think uh, the, the two best known in the UK, Linda McCartney and corn, they were there. But but you also, we, we created a fresh product where a lot of the, the corn products were frozen, for example. So so we created something with a, with a shelf life of, say, 15 days that's lying there next to meat because meat is also a fresh product. That we, so. I had no idea the complications of creating, you know, fresh versus frozen, and obviously looking at it afterwards, it might have been a lot easier for us to launch into frozen and then and then and then and do that. But yeah, um, it worked, and and we could then start scaling the business, get a get a few more employees in, and then get some funding, which we we start because we fast realized this space is moving fast, and you know, everything you do today. You can't sit and wait around and grow. I would have loved to grow the business organically and could be a family-run business 30 years from now. My kids could work in it and stuff, but this is just not how businesses are developed these days. If you want to be part of the race, you have to invest and you have to, otherwise you are... You're left behind. Yeah, you're left behind. Break down the science for me. What are the... There's a list of every ingredient, but what, what are the ingredients of a, a meatless farm mince or sausage? Yeah, so the main ingredients and where the protein is coming from is uh, something we call TVP or TPP, texturized vegetable protein. And it is essentially something that we in the beginning bought from a uh, producer of, uh, of TVP. And then we realized at some point as our volume started increasing that there was an issue with the consistency of that product. 
So we, we actually went to the extent to set up our own uh, factory in Canada, in Calgary. Okay. So we built that and it's, it's a subsidiary owned by Meatless Farm, but it's called Lovingly Made Ingredients. And we, we sell uh, protein uh, products, essentially TVP, into various applications to actually our competitors and others in the market that use this. And the way that it works is you have a, you start with a legume or a pea or bean or whatever it is, uh, it gets dried, it gets milked, and you have a flour. That flour is then uh, fractionated, which is essentially a process where you're separating starch carbohydrates from protein, and then you're getting a concentrated protein flour. That protein flour is put into an extrusion machine, which is essentially a big it sort of size of a bus, and you, you, you blow this flour in, and then you put pressure and steam on, and it looks like a big con candy flush machine on the right. inside, and this sort of web of of, uh, of the flour um, is, is then pressed through a little nozzle at the other end and out comes this, uh, yeah, essentially protein flour made out of peas in our case. Uh, and it has the same nutritional value uh, gram per gram as meat. Uh, and then we add, we fortify that product. You, you then basically you put it out in a nozzle and you chop it into meat sized chunks and we mix it into our, our product mix where we then add uh, colorant, which is often we use uh, beetroot and carrot for, for, for getting the right, right color into the product. And then you use uh, natural flavors, uh, you use oils, uh, emulsions and some, uh, some binding uh, material. And then uh, out comes a product that, at, at the end that is uh, fairly similar to, to meat, um, both in terms of texture and, uh, and, and, and looks mm -hmm. and, and, and most importantly as well, in the way that you prepare the food. So you don't need to learn to cook in a different way because you're using our product. What is the research as we stand today in terms of the size of the market for plant-based food and where are Meatless Farm in terms of penetrating that market? Yeah, I mean, the, the, so if we look at what we're trying to replace, which is probably the best, I, I don't know because the figures on plant-based is all over the place. Uh, it, it's it, the estimate. I assume going up and up though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a, we, we're talking a double, double digit growth per year, right? We, wow. as a business, we've been growing triple digits. Uh, so we are growing ahead of the market. We're proud of that, obviously down to our brand product and so forth. But the overall trend that we are following is the growth in the market. So more and more people, more and more consumers are adopting this type of diet. You probably know it yourself from friends and family that it's suddenly not, you know, a vegan is not the rare one out or you don't actually need to be vegan. You are a flexitarian. And, you know, that whole discussion, everybody is in. It, it's something that's becoming very fast mainstream. So, but the, the global meat industry is trillions of dollars of, of meat every year sold. And what we are right now is a total industry, I would say is probably three or 4%, if I'm being very optimistic of the total meat volume. So the replacement is extremely small right now, but it's already a business worth uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So obviously of pounds. So, so for us, the, the, what the real potential here is, I, I keep saying to, to people I speak to that, I view this a little bit like 1999 to 2000 standing and looking at the internet and people saying, oh, I'm gonna keep that fax machine there just because I don't really understand what an email is for. And then, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, we, we're, we're so dependent on our technology, our iPhones and, and, and Zoom calls and emails. We've and had enough meetings now where, you know, a particular individual in our business will talk around 
plant-based and you guys being a technology of tomorrow, the internet of tomorrow. So no, I fundamentally agree with that and you, can, and you can only see the direction going one way and explosion rates in your direction hopefully is, is, what you, is what you experience. You're in a range of retailers and food service businesses that we mentioned earlier on. Explain how you converted those contracts and also the challenges within the food industry. And you mentioned that you don't, you didn't have a food industry background. Yeah, so so I, I was a bit, you know, it's like the bumblebee that's too heavy to actually be carried by its own wings. So we were flying without knowing why in the early days. And I think that was because we were pioneers in, in the space in, in, in one way or another. So we made some fatal mistakes that turned out to, luckily enough, not be fatal because we were the more or less the only ones. So I, I don't think that would work today. So, so newcomers into the market have to sharpen their pens even more. But one of the things that was difficult was the fresh food supply chain and how fast from actually producing something. Well, first of all, finding a place to produce it and then uh, getting it fast enough into supermarket shelves, dealing with the waste or the scareness of supermarkets of saying, what's the rotation rate? So essentially supermarkets know exactly how their real estate inside a supermarket sells on what shell height and what turnaround of products that needs to be in order for a product to be... To and is that an issue for you, a challenge for you as a business, or is that more around what gets you onto that shelf space as a retailer? So unless you can fulfill some of those challenges, you just don't get a conversation, or they're happy to have the conversation, it's up to you then to fulfill those challenges in terms of turnaround and scale and mix up SKUs. Yeah, I mean, I think supermarkets have generally been very uh, interested in having conversations. They understand that the category is growing and they need to do more. However, the space is also getting more and more competitive, so they, they are looking for new products, uh, and, and and sort of want that you to drive the next level of innovation, you know, whether it is in, in, in we have just launched a, a full range of, of chicken. Uh, so we have a, a chicken breast, which actually we, we uh, award-winning product now that is, is doing phenomenally well for us. So, so just, you know, the market is moving on. We have to move, but we also have to remember that once you are on the, on the shelf, once you're lucky enough to actually in a supermarket, get your product in there, you need to keep the rotation up. You need to, educate the consumer with in-store activation and all these things, which is basically stuff I had to learn or hire people rather to, to, to who is experienced in, in that. And then also remember that there's another part of our business, which is the, uh, the food service, the restaurants, because I personally believe very much in the conversion that you go into a restaurant, you try a nice plant-based product and you basically say, wow, I want to cook that at home. You know, this, uh, whatever it is, a, a, a burger or a spag bowl or a chicken Caesar salad or whatever it is, I can't believe that this is plant-based. I'm going to go and, and so the conversion is you try it in a restaurant, you go into the supermarket and you buy the product and, and that's where we try to brand both. Yeah? So, and then, and then you bring it home. So um, that, that's been working for us and the challenge is there is, is, is constantly hitting the right price points. The retailers know what they're doing and they want to continue having their margin where I've often also argue with retailers and saying, you know, if you're selling sugar to kids, maybe you should have your regular retail margin. They have certain bands without going into details of how they are, but the supermarkets know how to make their money. Mm -hmm. And then we have to just be able to provide a product at that price. Otherwise, it's not going to be introduced. But what I'm saying is that if you are selling something where you have a sustainability ESG angle, or you're trying to actually save the environment in one way or another, there should be another margin requirement because it's not all about making money. It's about also getting these products into a mass market appeal. And sometimes for a small company like Meatless Farm and for a lot of plant-based companies, it's really, really hard with the volumes we have to meet the expectations of the retailers. 
especially if they look at the, the traditional protein space, which is meat, the meat volumes, as you know, are insanely big. Mm -hmm. And they have built this efficient supply chain over the last 100 years that are now down to the last detail optimized. So they can deliver products at a certain price point and still have their margins. Whereas for us, it might seem insane that you have to raise a cow for 18 or 24 months and then slaughter it and put it into a packaging and distribute. And you can do that cheaper than putting some peas into a pack. Yeah. yeah. But because of the supply chain, us having to build that backward integrating every element of that supply chain, it's very expensive. And therefore, it's very hard for us to basically, if we have to give the retailers the same margins as they're used to, we have no margin left ourselves or very limited, right? So there's a whole discussion there and, and how do we, because the, the flexion point is more volumes for us. So we need to be able to, to, to get the mass appeal and with more volume, we will get the efficiencies in that the traditional protein has, but we're just not there yet. So, and that's why we are out constantly raising money, uh, finding venture capital to help us with this expansion, because personally, my, my, my purpose behind Meatless Farm is to make a social change. I, I want people to eat different and I want this to have a, an impact because we can't continue to eat the way we have done. And I'm not saying that because I'm a producer of a plant-based product. It's really, if you look into it yourself, and I'm sure many of the people listening to this podcast will know that in their hearts that, that we cannot continue with a growing population at some point reaching 10 billion, to probably topping out around there, unless we change something now in the way we eat, we, 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 you know, what is it they say that there's 60 crop cycles left in the UK unless that the farmers really start changing the way that they produce right. uh, and, and how soil is cultivated. Well, just the same in, in, in the meat industry. If we continue with yeah. antibiotics and growth hormones and, and, and so forth uh, in, into the, well, we are not only ruining our own health, but also everything else around it yeah. in the environment. No, I, I fully agree with that, and um, definitely, as someone who tries to consider some of the products that you you know taste and those, I'm, I'm definitely on that journey as well. You touched on the um, the fundraisers, which leads me nicely into the next section where I'd, I'd like to explore and talk around those fundraisers. Explain the the fundraising rounds that you've completed to date, the journey that you've been on, and how much have you raised, and how many sort of rounds have you done? Yeah, I think we. Uh, uh, off my head here, it's difficult to remember because we, we did quite a few smaller races in the beginning as, as, as we were building up. And then we've done a couple of larger ones where we've taken in sort of uh, two, two tickets of around 20 million each. So I think in total with the convertible notes that we've also done, uh, we probably raised around 65 million in total. Um, this is a lot of money, but uh, if you think about what we built for that, I, I think it's, it's we, we tried to turn every penny uh, in the process and, and, you know, building that factory, for example, lovingly made ingredients factory in, in Canada was, a, was a, a significant cost for us. Plus, building a consumer brand is, is not uh, cheap. We also have our own food science department where we have our white lab coats, as, as we call them, which are essentially food scientists that are working on, we're trying to make everything as natural as possible in our ingredients deck because that is a, an important driver. So if you're looking at using some sort of product in the past that was maybe not 100% natural, uh, well, then we go in from a different angle and say, well, we will, with our own research, try to find that angle where we can use a binding material made out of husk, for example, rather than uh, methyl cellulose or, you know, something like that. And, and all these elements of it, uh, the supply chain integration, 
the the drive for better, healthier, cleaner ingredients, decks, and so forth, uh, cost cost money as well. So, what metrics are investors asking you when they're focusing around investing into sustainability? What are the key questions you got? Um, well, a lot of it is about the clean sort of ingredients, uh, the labeling of how consumers see that, whether you use soy versus pea, what the perception is, that whole discussion where, um, then again, we, 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 you know, we have all the, I believe we have the answers to what the future will be, which is not only a discussion about uh, whether it's made out of pea or soy, but it, it, it's a blended product because if you think about it naturally, a pea or a soybean cannot give you all the nutrition you want. So our ambition is to build a product which is a blended product of TVP, which naturally will give you all the vitamins, iron, omegas and so forth, uh, amino acids that you would get from meat, but without all the, the bad things. But we cannot get that from just using one single uh, a, a product. So. So it's um, yeah, it, it's it's an ongoing process of, of that. But but so the problem obviously that that you could face as a, as as and this is not meat as farm only. This is the entire plant based industry. Is that we're struggling with well scaling is 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 expensive. You with some clients that especially in the food service space, there's requirements for you to have uh, inventory levels at a certain uh, size, which mm -hmm. means that suddenly our inventory levels are going from say. 2 million to 6 million pounds. And for a company that's fun, I mean, we, our way of, of, of expansion is the most expensive one okay. because we're selling equity. We don't have a, a, a structural PL that allows us uh -huh. to borrow money from a bank, which, for example, if you're building a factory, most people building a factory will not do that with cash. They will do that with some level of relatively affordable bank financing. But a startup or scale up at our size cannot do that. So mm -hmm. this is really. The, the struggle, and that's why we keep having to raise uh, some some more money in uh, in order to uh, yeah to keep growing. Is there a difference in and there's no pun intended here? Is there a difference in appetite from investors in, for example, UK, Europe to America? Are there different conversations you have? Could, you know, is any one market more development when looking at at this particular space? Yeah, I think I I think most startups, not even only relating it to plant based, but most startups. I, I, will see a difference in how European investors are versus US investors. US investors see the big picture often. It's very much about scaling and how, how, how many percent of the total global market can you become and let us see a very aggressive forecast model from you and then we are willing to pump up your valuation and give you, you know, and, and this way obviously pump up valuations give you an opportunity to not dilute so much as a, as a startup and at the same time have enough capital to grow. So that's the advantage of the US model. What it is to us Europeans often is, and particularly to my philosophy as well, is it just seems a little bit like too much hot air pumped in. So we've always tried, and we, we suffered this in the early days when Beyond IPO, uh, a few years ago now, uh, they had a tremendous success with their IPO. And I think the, the, you know, the IPO IPO at around a billion dollars and, and the value went up to 11 or 12, you know, crazy amounts, mm -hmm. very, very fast. And the hype came into the market. And thereby the interesting increased in us as well. And we always sort of try to say, hey, we are not going to benefit from that hype because when the market turns, and it always does if you hype something up, then we're going to be smacked and we don't want to be there uh, and sitting and having to do down rounds or, or, or things like that. So, so we've tried to stay relatively conservative, but at the same time, sometimes we wish there was a little bit more ambition with 
the European investors to just look through what I often feel is that they're staring at the dot on the wall and not the view out of the window. Can they see past the capital intensive nature of a business like this? Well, that's where the questions come. When you know what's your growth market, particularly now where the market is a little bit more uh, unsettled than it was just a year ago or two years ago. If we can't have COVID, crazy enough, we come out of this period of of of, of lockdowns, uh, entering a you know inflationary uh, environment with a with a war going on in 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 Russia or well in Ukraine, and and it, it, that's certainly not helpful for valuation. So I think the the overall market is less. There's less risk. You've seen bank stocks and other things that are suddenly so safe investments have gone up, while more risky ones have gone down. The thing is, what we need to remember is that we are not in this for some speculative purpose. We are in this to change the way we eat, and therefore, regardless of a war or a, a, a pandemic or something else, there is the the view out of the window, which is we need to change the way we consume uh, protein. And and unless you investor are willing to give us the benefit of the doubt, and yes, our gross margins are not where they should be right now, but they will not get better unless we can actually grow the volume. With the, to grow the volume, we need more capital. And 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 yes, there is a business model. I think in, if 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 you were sitting with our our financial model in front of you, you would see that we break even about two to three years from now. So there is a path to how you start making money and you become a real business, but you also just need to have that period before of, that point, yeah, before that, where you're allowed to mature and grow and grow the market. And and we are growing a market. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So therefore, we have to educate the consumers, which is costing money. It'll be easier to come in afterwards, and definitely you're going to see a lot of supermarkets coming in and benefiting from the work that, say, for example, Meatless Farm has done by making private label products. Especially in the UK and Europe, as you said, you are one of the fastest growing. You're you're getting that message out there. You are educating. You're informing. You you are creating the marketplace for yeah. these products, and with that comes that capital intensive nature, whether it's a marketing or product development or the expansion into those particular regions. We've touched on a couple of names, obviously Beyond and Impossible are the, the highest profile. Does that high profile, high valuation nature to those businesses, I suppose this may change from day to day in terms of how you consider it, is, that, is it positive in terms of how it shines a light on such businesses? Does it frustrate you because some of these businesses are valued at such a high multiple? You saw the Oatly IPO as well, that they saw 12 months ago or so. Where's your mind with it, or, or, or does it change? You see them as champions, and you can sort of leverage off the back of that, or does it frustrate you? No, I think I think it's overall positive as long as it's not being viewed as as hype. Yeah, I think the market is growing for all type of products in in the plant based space, and uh, and and it is certainly helpful that there are some companies that are pioneering. Uh, although you know, it makes you wonder. Exactly. Some. I mean, there are some valuations that are a little bit far, far reached. Uh, they, they are. I have to say, being adjusted a, a bit right now. And the, 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 what I'm frustrated about is when we then go out and fundraise, then investors are skeptical because of the hype that others have created, while we have never done it. So, so sort of, why should we suffer on our valuation, which is a multiple in sales? Yeah, why, for example, that's and, one, and, one you're, and you're a fraction of those sizes as well. Yeah, and a fraction of it, and, and we have never benefited from the hype. So why should we benefit? Why should we be disadvantaged from the the lack of hype now? So so it's sort of so we we're just continuing to do what we've done all along, and uh, and and are hoping that well, we are seeing obviously with the money we raised that that is a significant amount of money. So there's clearly investors that are willing to support this 
and we've just taken on some very interesting investors as well from from a, a, a you know new markets that are you know nice to see that some some people have that sort of view to the future uh, and that's what we need more of to be honest okay thank you moving away from the fundraisers you took an interesting step away from the business in terms of from a CEO role. Obviously, you've done a role in the business. You're the founder. You've got day to day, as I well know. How easy a decision was that for you to make in terms of stepping away from a CEO role? And why did you think you needed to step away? How easy was it to find a new CEO? So think around that sort yeah. of journey, and 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 when you got to that point, and also to the point of getting Dior into the business. Yeah, so so we had a we we had for for the last couple of years we've had a chairman who comes who was the former global CEO of, of Lidl, and the idea with with his involvement was obviously to professionalize the way that we uh, approach customers and 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 the whole business in in general. And one of the discussions I've had with 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 the, with my chairman for a while was like you know what when. Is it what should my role be? Should I be chairman, founder? Should I be CEO? Should I? And I still felt for a long time that I needed to be the CEO of the business because not so much from an operational point of view, but more from a cultural point of view. Okay. That there's this sort of urgency about my way of operating, where people at the end of the day, people work for people, and in our business, I care deeply about our people, uh, and therefore they care about me or they care about Meals Farm, and I think that has really kept us strong for a long period of time so it was a very difficult decision to step out of that and but but it was also becoming clear that there's so many technicalities of driving a food business from being a startup to being a scale up and we've now launched into multiple markets i mean we are we're really taking a punch at at the the european market at the moment and there will be more add-ons as well so it become more and more complex so i i felt that i needed to find someone who had that experience uh, previously? So, so uh, incomes uh, via connections and contacts. Uh, Dior, uh, which is a, a very experienced lady from uh, from from the plant based uh, industry, and uh, it was sort of yeah, I think just the right right time for for someone to to come and and, and take over. And she has had that. She worked at a at a, at a large plant based business. Uh, uh, which was a, a private equity led business before so she had sort of the right experience in terms of how to improve margins because that's very much the business of being owned by a, by a PE and then at the same time also how do I scale and being a commercial sort of beast as uh, as as she likes to uh, to say herself and 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 that's just you know I am the typical entrepreneur so what I do now is I stay involved I, I um, you know, if I'm asked, I will be very happy to give my opinion, but I'm not pushing it in there. I'm just, and then, and then more doing the, the, the fundraising, the, the marketing, the PR, and staying close to, yeah, all the people that, you know, we have town halls and I come on and say, say a few things and, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, and it, it's a difficult role, but, but for me to be quiet, I like to talk, as you can, <laughs> as you can hear. <laughs> quiet, but, you know, that's good, it's all good. It's good, yeah. <laughs> Well, we're often asked around boards and board composition, whether that, that's swift clients as we walk them into a deal or they're asking for us to help them out in terms of putting um, people in there. You mentioned that your chairman at the time or you're still in the business was, was, was strong in terms of where, where your focus should be. How important to you has been having the right people around you and that could be from a board perspective or advisory? 
Yeah, no, I, it's, I think it's crucial. It, it's, you should never stop learning. And, and the minute that you stop listening to other people, uh, you have a, I, I believe you have a problem. So, but you also need to be very strong with your own gut instinct and know what's best for the business. What's very, very easy is to, and we've been through that process as well, where you hire a lot of fancy CVs that come with a lot of food experience or FMCT experience or whatever it is, and they just don't work in that environment that, that you've created. It doesn't mean that they are not great people or great professionals, but they might work better in a, in a large FMCT structure rather than in a small company that has a lot of the problems that, yeah. I mean, a lot of people come from, say, a side where they've been wanting, say, a typical sales director comes in and says, oh, I had a, I, I ran a, a, a sales budget of 500 million, so I'm gonna run one of, of 25 or 50 million, easy peasy, 10 times easier. And it's not. It's just the opposite. Stage of, growth. You need a particular yeah. skill set, different type of personalities. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you apply your skills from running five hundred million of sales to running fifty million of sales, it's not going to work. So so it's really you have to be very careful when you hire that hiring the big CVs in is maybe not doing justice to their experience and it's not going to do justice to you. So finding the right people on a practical level that can really just roll up the sleeves and have some experience in the size that you are right now, that, that's important. What's your favorite meatless farm product? It's the, right now it's the chicken breast because, uh, but our best selling skew I have to say is the, is the mince and it, it, it hopefully will continue to be because that is the biggest selling item. It's the one we make most of our, our sales from. But I just think the chicken breast right now is such a nice way of, we started with beef, now we move into chicken, and who knows what the next thing will be. There's many elements of protein that needs to be solved. And obviously chicken is, is, is another part of it, right? And, and chicken is so uh, consumed, if you look at, at so many, so many, many applications that chicken goes into, that, uh, that we, we, we've launched this chicken breast, it's phenomenal. It fries and looks and tastes like normal chicken and it's made out of pea, that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's good, that's good. Well, okay, final question. Um, you're having your final dinner, whether that's death row style or just you know, your final dinner. Evidently, it'll be plant-based. Don't be, don't, Absolutely. Don't, don't be any meat on the, <laughs> on the table and, and maybe your meatless farm chicken will be on the, the main course. Three guests, dead or alive, uh, to join you. Okay. And that could be from a motivational point of view, business, sport, whatever, your choice. Three guests, who are those three guests and why? And they they can be dead or alive. They can be dead or alive. They're going to be alive for you at the at the at the dinner. But they could. They could yeah, be, yeah. They'll be <laughs> <still alive. laughs> more fun to to have a dinner with people alive. Yeah, so that's good. Um, yeah. Well, I think um, hmm, um, Richard Feynman would be one. He's a famous scientist. He's he's okay. passed. Uh, very uh, very very clever man. So I just love to. He's known for being one of the best lecturers ever on, on sort of uh, everything from quantum mechanics to physics and the universe. And, you know, he had a very, very creative mind. So I'd, I'd love to discuss. And then him put together with Carl Sagan, which is this uh, astronomer, TV personality. He's also passed away, but he's the one with the blue dot. You know, that famous quote where he talks about the blue dot. The, listening to those two discussing so that the, the so you're going to listen to these people. Too. Yeah, yeah, I would listen. I wouldn't talk there, and then and then talk where I would have some questions right now and and very sort of in the time. Probably if you ask me 
uh, a year ago or a year from now, I wouldn't say the same, but I would love Putin to be around the table as well, just to ask him what his thoughts were from uh, the, the, you know, the type of uh, mess that, uh, that he put himself into and the rest of the world with him, of course, you know, just it's not a funny situation, but yeah. yeah, just understand exactly the, 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 these effects, the macro uh, political environment. So, so, uh, so there you go. So, okay. That would be my... Uh, well, before I thank you, and I do thank you for joining us on the podcast, we have actually had another guest with us other than stayed asleep with us for the entire time. Oh yeah, Alfie, yeah. Talking about Alfie. Alfie, Alfie is my rescue dog, so he was found in a dumpster and now he's, he doesn't move more than five meters away from me and no, right now he's lying on my foot, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for coming and uh, thanks. Top man. Thank you for listening. If you're an entrepreneur or CEO and have a story you would like to feature, or would like to suggest a founder you'd like to hear from, drop us a line at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. That's live, L-I-V-E, at zeuscapital.co.uk. Or follow us on social media at Founder and Chief. Don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed.